Wow. Thank you, Donald. Um, yeah, I'm trying. Pray for me. Um, I've been staring at a camera in my office for 15 months. Um, so this is pretty surreal. So grateful. Uh, we're going to dive into our sermon series. If you have been journeying with us online, uh, we're in the middle of a sermon series titled Authentic Faith, and we've been studying the book of James. It's a letter that the biological brother of Jesus wrote to Christians that were scattered throughout the then known world due to persecution. And what we've been unpacking in this letter has been quite profound. I'm going to go to the verses that we left off at, which is chapter 1, verse 9 to 11. It says this, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Would you join me in prayer? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege it is to gather as a body. Lord, thank you for carrying us as a church throughout this unprecedented season in our lives. And we're so grateful to be together again in person to fill this room with your praises, to encounter you together as a people. Holy Spirit, glorify Jesus. Cause the word of God to come alive to us as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, recently, I was catching up with a friend, and he was sharing with me. I, it was a friend and his father. And it was just a proud moment. This gentleman, uh, he's of Korean descent, and he had a major milestone in his family's life. They were celebrating my friend's promotion. He got a really great job that he had been working hard for, and this was after going to college and graduate school, and the father was beaming with pride, but wasn't like overly demonstrative. Um, those of you that are Korean probably understand what I'm, what I'm saying. It was, there was a pride there, but it wasn't overly demonstrative. As he began to share, he sat me down and he began to tell me all the sacrifices that he had gone through for his children. How many people with immigrant parents know where I'm going? And so you don't know what I did, what, what the sacrifices I went through to get to this country, uh, just all that I did in order to make this moment possible. I just wanted a better life for our kids. That's why we came here. We didn't know the language. We were here all alone. And he says, when I came here, I had $5 in my pocket. I was just overwhelmed by the story. I was just like, wow, what a sacrifice, what a love. And I look over to my friend and I'm thinking he's going to say something really profound to me, like as he's just standing on the shoulders of his dad's sacrifice. And he says, the first time he told me this story, he had $500 when he came here. It keeps getting less with each year. How many know, how many have been there? How many have been there? I share that because I think the immigrant experience is probably one of the closest parallels or similarities to the people that James is writing to because these Christians, because of their faith, they were persecuted and they were scattered 
all over the world in order to hide and survive. They were being killed because of their faith in Jesus. And in, in being uprooted, they were finding themselves in new places to live, leaving their businesses, their livelihood. Their life was completely unsettled. And we've been looking at this journey of Jesus maturing these people, maturing us in the midst of suffering and difficulty. If you've been trekking with us as we've been unpacking these verses, we've been learning how every trial that we go through, Jesus uses it to transform our character. And how when James was writing this to these people, it's striking that he would address the issue of rich and poor to these folks. Why does he do so? Because we have to understand that he's talking about believers whose socioeconomic situation has completely changed. From one day to the next, they have nothing. They have been uprooted. They have no livelihood. They're, they're scattering. Um, they're being forced to leave Jerusalem and establish new homes in Syria and northern Palestine. And most of them would be facing tough financial situations as well as social uh, dislocation, even ostracism. And so imagine starting over in a brand new city. Imagine moving to a brand new location, a brand new job. This is what they're going through. And to them, he addresses this issue of rich and poor. And I find it amazing that we're tackling this at this time in our culture because, quite frankly, society does not have an answer for the class divide. Society doesn't have an answer except to keep pitting poor against rich, rich against poor. Society has no answer to heal us. It just keeps spilling on more and more ways that we end up ingraining into our souls and it divides us even more. But here James is talking about something that's very relevant for us right now in 2021. And to these people that he was writing this, it's important to understand that when we say they were poor, it's not what we imagine poor to be in America. In America, someone can be poor and still have food. Someone can be poor and wear expensive shoes. Someone can be poor under the poverty line and actually have some means. At that time, over 90% of the world at that time was living in abject poverty. The vast majority of people were day laborers. And so this is how they would survive. They would borrow money to buy seed. They would plant that seed. They would hope that enough crops would grow that they could feed themselves, sell some of it, pay back the person that they borrowed the money, and hopefully, hopefully, but more than likely not, they made a little bit just to survive. But there was also some people back then that weren't in abject poverty. They had means, they were landowners, they had titles, they had authority in society. And James is writing to these people that are followers of Jesus and he's addressing the existence of both. So you have to understand that from the very outset, the church, the people of God, when they gathered together, there was both rich and poor within the church. Both were welcome. Neither was seen as an enemy or ostracized. Neither was dehumanized. They were both welcome to the church. And so if we understand this, that James is writing to both rich and poor, but both rich and poor in this situation have been dislocated. But if you know, if you're rich, you probably have been dislocated, but you could land on your feet a bit quicker. 
And if you're poor, you've been dislocated in this context and you might have a tougher go at this. And he's writing to these folks and he's writing with the lens that you and I desperately need to apply to ourselves, to our church, to our society. And that is this, that the gospel creates a new humanity. That what Jesus has done through his death, burial, and resurrection, he didn't just do that to prepare us to go into the afterlife. He did that so that in this life, you and I could live out a new humanity that the world has not seen. A people for which the divisions and the classes that society lives in do not separate. James is writing a much-needed word to these followers of Jesus and a much-needed word to us. If you're a student of history, you would know this quote. It's from Karl Marx. He said, the history of all hitherto existing societies is the history of class struggle. Marx, who was the father of communism and socialism, he argued that you could look at history through this lens, that history has, not, has been nothing more than an unfolding of class struggle, rich and poor pitted against each other. And though there's some truth to that, there's a reason why that theory took root, there's some truth to it. But what the flaw of that truth is that it dehumanizes people because it views them strictly through the lens of what you have or what you don't have. See, wealth or poverty in that view make you either more human or less human. But James is writing from a totally different perspective, from the perspective of the gospel. And from the perspective of the gospel, wealth or poverty don't make you more human or less. In fact, Galatians says this, chapter 3, verse 26, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. See, James is writing from this vantage point that what the gospel has done, it has torn down the former divisions. It has eradicated the barriers that separated us before we were in Christ. And now that we are in Christ, we are living from this place of a new humanity that Jesus has created. Where the divisions that destroy human connection and human community do not have their force and their power. What James is alluding to is what some theologians have described, the upside-down kingdom. That in Jesus, things that society says are up, Jesus says, actually, no, it's the opposite. See, in Jesus, Jesus says, blessed are those who give. Society says, blessed are those who hoard and keep more for themselves. Jesus says, the way you are freed is to forgive. Society says, no, the way you get freed is by revenge. It's completely upside down in Jesus. And here James is pointing out that in Christ, how we see ourselves in relation to wealth, possessions, and status is turned upside down. Let me unpack this further. Did you notice that James said, the poor are to take pride 
in their humble situation. That's powerful. James is saying, because of what Jesus has done, because of who you are in Christ, even if you're poor, you have dignity. The gospel showers you with dignity because the poorest person had a king die for them. The most abject poverty-written person had the Son of God die and shed his blood for their redemption. And so they deserve dignity by virtue of that fact alone, let alone that they have the image of God inside of them. See, James is pointing that, they, that the poor have an identity that's greater than their lack of possessions. How many have ever felt less than in comparison to someone else? It can happen in so many situations. Maybe you went to a, a good school, but it's not as good as someone else. Maybe you make a good income, but it's not as good as someone else. Or you have a great apartment, but it's not as good as... The list can go on and on and on and on where we can be feel, where we can be made to feel less than. I know for me, it was a part of my journey for many years. I grew up in, uh, in a home where we lived on public assistance. My mom was a single parent, and so she raised my sister and I all by herself in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. Any Brooklyn people in the house? There? I, I know. I know, I see it in your eyes. And so, and grew up in that situation, and by God's grace, went to school, got a college degree, worked hard, tried to establish myself in life. And for whatever reason, God has a sense of humor, I have found myself throughout the years, I've interacted with people that make incredible money. And I'm always dumbfounded, like, why am I in this room? You know, like, who, like, I always feel like I snuck in. It, whether it's uh, entrepreneurs, um, folks in tech, certain celebrities, just wealth that I can't even wrap my mind around. Uh, you know, there's, it's a funny thing. Uh, the, the more I've interacted with people in that, in that sphere, like, wealthy people have stuff given to them. And I'm just like, the poor need that stuff, you know, like they'll get free tickets to things and it's like, give that to the poor. But the wealthy live in a totally, totally different situation. I, I heard a story where they, there was this one guy, he was a, also a celebrity and he organized this dinner with some really prominent people and they all went to the dinner and at the end of the dinner he realized that none of them were expecting to pay for the meal. Because normally when these wealthy people were invited places, somebody would pay for the meal for the privilege of being in their presence, whether it was uh, a film studio or a, an institution or whatever. And he tells a story at the end of this meal, he had to scramble and, and pull, pull a friend and say, help me pay for this meal. It's going to be a great embarrassment to me in this restaurant. It's, it's a totally different experience. And being in those settings has made, I've felt awkward so many times until I began to really root myself in what James is inviting us to root ourselves in, and that is that we, because of who we are in Christ, wealth, possessions, status are not the foundation of our identity. And so because of that, a poor person could stand 
in the room full of wealthy people and that poor person has just as much dignity, just as much right, just as much value as those that are wealthy. Now, society won't say that, but the one who created society does. To Jesus, when he applies the scales, he says, that person has just as much dignity as everybody else that society says has more. James is rooting us into this reality, but to the rich, he's rooting them into a different reality that's just as much necessary. And we have to be clear, James is not trying to denigrate the rich. If you read the context of the rest of James and also Scripture, he's not trying to say that it's a sin to be rich. But what he is warning the rich is don't peg your identity to your possessions. Because as he says, as the sun comes and, and the flower is here today and it scorched the next, so is our possessions. And, and that's a word for the rich, but that's a word for any of us that are trying to root our identity to something other than Jesus. The truth is, you pegging your sense of worth to anything other than the love of God is a risky ordeal. Because today people will love you that tomorrow won't talk to you. Today you'll have a job that tomorrow they'll discard you. When we root our identity to our possessions, our bank account, our schools, I knew this person that had such great pride in their school that they would drop the name of their school in every conversation. You ever been around folks? And so, like, but it was like excessive, excessive. Like, oh man, that street light reminds me of a street light. Back in campus, you know, like, it's, we, all right, we know, you went to a good school, and then the school lost its accreditation, and then all of a sudden we stopped hearing about his school. But he pegged his identity to something that was shifting. We all do it. We do it in our relationships. If, if, if you're single, you say, man, I, I would feel better if I was in a relationship. If you're married, you say, I feel better if I had kids. If you have kids, say, I feel better if they grew up and just left us alone. <laughs> if I have a house, I'd be better if I had two. It, it, it does not end when you and I peg our identity to things that are not eternal. Our identity is constantly in crisis. No wonder we have such an epidemic of anxiety in our society because we're trying to live out of a center that's unstable, that doesn't have the weight to carry our lives. Some of the happiest people I've ever met were poor people who had faith in Jesus, had no material possessions that the world would consider would be great, but they had Jesus. If, uh, they say about 50% of the world's population lives under poverty. And I heard someone say, I know six billionaires and none of them were really happy. But at least 50% of those people, at least some of them were happy, at least some of the time. What, what James is alluding to is that there is a way to have joy in the midst of trial. He's writing to people who've lost everything, who have been displaced, and he's saying, take pride in your humble situation. It's absurd at first. He's saying, rejoice right now that you're going through this, that you feel like you're at the lowest totem pole. Take joy where you're at in life, because even if you're at the lowest, 
God esteems you at the highest. And he's saying to those of you that have much, heed this warning. Don't peg your identity to your possessions. Peg your identity to Christ. Some of the happiest people I know that are wealthy have discovered this truth. I remember years ago I was meeting with the head of one of the largest Christian foundations. Now, let me say this, because I think it's appropriate to say it. I think there's so many criticisms that are right to be leveled against the church. I think the church, the people of God, the capital C church, we have so many ways to grow. Of course, we should. We're broken people that Jesus is redeeming. And I, I think a lot of the moments where people point out the flaws of the church are valid. But I will say this, and I think it's important for us to know, the most generous people throughout history have been followers of Jesus. They live with a radical generosity. It's because of the generosity of the people of God throughout the ages that some of the most remarkable institutions that the world has ever seen have been created from universities to hospitals to, to missions that would rescue the poor, the vulnerable, children that were in, in, in slave labor essentially were set free. The church has been part of some of the most remarkable things that have changed society and have fought injustice throughout the ages. And in particular, when it comes to generosity, to living radically generous, you may not know, but some of the most famous business people in this world throughout history that were followers of Jesus, they lived reverse. They didn't give God 10% of their income. They gave God 90% and lived off of 10. Some of the most generous people that have created foundations and institutions that have come alongside the poor and the marginalized. I was meeting with the brother of a founder of this, of this Christian foundation, and they give away all their money every year. Uh, you may not know this, but most you can be considered a foundation if you give a small percentage of the money and you can keep the rest in the bank and just accrue interest. And that's why some of these foundations are so big and powerful because they give away a little bit just to be able to justify themselves in the label of foundation, but then they accrue tons of money. They become quite powerful. Some foundations have more than some banks, um, small banks. This foundation, Christian Foundation, gives away all their money every year. Their bank account goes to zero, and then the next year, they'll refill it again. The brother that created this foundation, he's a billionaire. At one point, his company was powering Latin America, if you could wrap your mind around that. They, they were responsible for the lights going on in Latin America. In one day in the stock market, he lost $40 billion. $40 billion. I gotta be real with you. The other day I lost $5 and it was an emotional situation. <laughs> I'm questioning my kids. I'm, who, you. Let me smell your breath. Did you go to the store? You bought something. What are you planning, boy? It, it, 40 billion. I can't even wrap my mind. In one day, he asked his brother, he said, what did that feel like? And he said, it felt like ripping a Band-Aid. He said, huh? He said, I'm way richer in Christ than I am in my bank statements. This comes and goes. Only Jesus can give a poor person the audacity to say, I don't have much, but I have something eternal. 
And only Jesus could give a rich person the audacity to say, I could lose this all, but I'm still rich. James is writing to both. And it addresses something. The things you and I have in our life, are they a resource or are they your identity? The things you have in your life and mine, are they resources or are they identity? Your job, is it a resource that allows you to pay for life, to live generously, to do the things that God's called you to do, or is it your identity? Your relationships, are they resources that you're called to steward and manage and cultivate, or are they your identity? We have to ask ourselves this question, and in particular, I find that when it comes to talking about money in church, it always gets awkward. And that's one of the reasons I actually really enjoy talking about money in church. Here's why, because I know when we talk about that subject, you are interacting with a person's fears, their hopes, their identity, Every, it touches everything. It's the nerve center, often, of our lives. And in particular, it's the nerve center if it's not viewed as a resource, if it's viewed as our identity. Where if I don't have X amount, how could I live? How could I function? See, when, I'm going to, just to continue on this theme of money, but you can apply it to anything. Think of your career, your relationships, anything. When money is seen as a resource to be managed for God and not the source of our identity, then the invitation to live generously is joyously received. When something is your identity and God begins to touch it, you get ready to fight him. When God begins to touch the sources of your identity that are not him, then that's when we get sour, we lose faith, we get tempted to walk away. But when those things are not the source of our identity, but rather resources that we are called to manage, we receive his invitation to open up our hands. There's two ways you and I could live in this life, whether it's a lot of possessions or, or little. We could live closed-fisted. This is mine. No one will take it away. I can't live without it. Or we will live open-handed and say, I have a greater identity that I'm living from. And so whether this is in my hand or not, praise the Lord. James is talking to people that were going through suffering and he's giving them the most clearest perspective to live their life from. Saying no matter what you have, if you have little, if you have a lot, you can be rooted in an identity that's given to you by God and not given to you by the world or things. And when that perspective comes in the moment of suffering, it brings clarity. Have, have you ever gone through a difficult season in your life that at the end of it, you find yourself not caring about things you used to care about? Where, where if before you were concerned about someone's opinion of you or, or this situation that you had no power to control, when you go through certain sufferings, you come out of the end, it's like, I don't care. I, I was recently talking with a parent who, and, and it, was a, it was a really interesting dynamic. It was a celebration of a child 
who had just finished their last chemo treatment. It was an amazing celebration. I was there with my family. And then there was a parent whose son just started chemo. What a juxtaposition. And I found myself engrossed in conversation with this parent. And I was praying that God would give me the words. And most of all, I just listened. I remember she said something that was so powerful. She said, I used to care about what this person thought or, or maybe the next trip we were going to take. None of that matters. None of that matters. Suffering clears our perspective. And James, the people that were suffering, is giving them some clear perspective. He's saying, live in light of the reality that everything is passing. Everything is fleeting. It's a dangerous thing to live for legacy, for fame, for notoriety, because it's passing. James is saying a word that only people that go through suffering can fully understand. Because these people have gone through suffering. They know what it is to experience loss. And he's telling them, you could live in such a way where these things are held loosely. I think this is an appropriate, fitting word for us in this season of life in New York City as a church. Because though we didn't experience the pandemic equally the same, we have all gone through a season of life that we will be unpacking for some time to come. And if anything, this gave us perspective. For some of us, it made us realize that life is too short, relationships matter, and I'm going to push forward to make sure that I'm reconciled and that I'm at the table with people because I love them and I need to love them and I'm not going to let petty differences get the best of me. Suffering will do that. For some of us, we realize life is short and, I, and, and as much as I treasure relationships, relationships come and go. Some of us have lost relationships during this time and you've had to find yourself and say, if I don't have people, how do I move forward? People that I've depended on, how do I pick myself up? For us, the invitation is let Jesus be the center of your life. Let him be the relational core that moves you forward. Suffering clears our perspective. And in the midst of suffering, only Jesus can open up our hands to say you're holding on to that too tight. You're basing your identity on that alone. Let me open your hand, live with open hands, and grab hold of who I say you are. Whether people are for you or against you, his love changes not. Whether you have an immense bank account or you're barely getting by, he doesn't love you any different based on that. Whether society honors you or disgraces you, the king loves you and raises you up with honor. This is the invitation that God is extending to us. Will we live from a place of our identity centered in him? Will we open up our hands, let go of what we're holding on, clutching to, and live from a different center, namely his love?
As we close, I want to invite you to stand with me as I lead us into a time of prayer and reflection. So worship team comes forward. I want to invite you, if you would, if you would just bow your head just for a moment and just begin to talk to God and begin to ask him to help you search your heart to help you understand what actually is the core of your identity. The reality is sometimes we could live for years and not knowing that something actually other than Jesus is at the core of our life. And you only know when it's taken away from you. But, but right now in these moments, the living God could open your heart and begin to show you this is the thing you actually trust in more than me. This is the thing that you root your identity to. Right now, as you're talking with God, allow the Holy Spirit to bring those things up to the surface. Perhaps he's been talking to you about this throughout this whole time. And this is a moment I want to invite you to just bring your hands before God. And as an act of faith, Open your hands in the presence of God and begin to invite the Holy Spirit to empower you to live like this. To live with open hands. To have an identity that's not pegged to things, to possessions, but an identity that's rooted in Jesus. Jesus, as we worship you, as we come to you, may your liberating love meet us in this moment. Crack open our hearts. Set us free. And may you bond us, weld us, root us in our identity to your unchanging love. Let's worship him together at this time.